Back in 2012, John was going through a divorce. Things got a little tight financially, and he needed some help with the bills. So he got a roommate, a friend of his. And it was such a good experience, he decided to rent out another room in his house. So he put an ad on Craigslist and immediately got a response from an elderly widow. Her name was Marion. She's an older lady. You just assume that you can trust her. Uh, that she's going to be cooperative and just being, you know, helping around the home with maybe being clean and cleaning up after herself and not being a burden. It felt like the perfect match. Marion was in her 70s. She was quiet and reserved. It seemed like she was looking for a peaceful and comfortable home. And at first, she got along really well with John and his other roommate. So in that first month, was she relatively peaceful? Yes, uh, absolutely. Quiet, cordial. You know, wants to sit down and, and just maybe watch a little bit of television or whatever. Very cordial, very friendly, uh, just kind of minded her own business, kind of went up to her room and did her thing. Marion told John that she was a writer, and so he assumed that that's what she was doing up in her room for hours every day. But John would learn the hard way that what Marion was writing would blow up his life. You don't realize what she's working on is a legal document against you. In the beginning, John thought he was dealing with a kind, harmless elderly lady. But according to the FBI, he was actually dealing with a terrorist. It's one of those things where she's very disarming. These people disguise themselves, molds in sheep clothing. They, they look nice. And also you find out that they're not that way at all. John had no idea what he was getting himself into when he rented a room to Marion Burnson. And he had no idea that he was just one of her many victims. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. This is Marion Burnson, paper terrorist. A story told in one episode. I'm Hannah Smith. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Opportunist ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. In 2013, Anya Hertel was an empty nester. Hoping to earn some extra money, she decided to rent out a room in her house in McHenry, Illinois, about an hour outside of Chicago. She put an ad in the paper, and she got a response right away. The woman said her name was Jamie Price. She came to Anya's house— they sat out on the screened-in porch and talked. She told me she was a freelance writer. You know, she was older, so she was like a grandmother. And I thought, wow, this is a really safe prospect. You know, she would fit right in here um, because she'd be working. She, she has a huge bedroom to do her work in, a lot of privacy for her. Anya's house was fully furnished. There wasn't a lot of extra room. So she asked Jamie... How much stuff do you have? Oh, do you have a dresser? You know, do you have a desk? She was like, yes, I have a desk. Yes, I have a dresser. You know, she didn't elaborate. But, you know, I figured, well, she probably has minimal things. And that's great. Yes, Jamie Price was a total stranger. But Anya said she seemed reserved and quiet and someone who wouldn't be too disruptive. They both agreed that Jamie would move in. But then on moving day, Jamie brought a lot more than just a dresser and a desk. 
she had half of a moving van full. How how big was the moving van? Like the ones, those big ones that you see when a whole house moves. And I'm like, are you kidding? But what was Anya supposed to do at that point? The truck was there. The movers were waiting to unload Jamie's possessions. So Anya told Jamie that she could store some things in the garage, but only temporarily. So I said, you're going to have to put all the extra stuff in the two-car garage, and then you're going to have to move that stuff out. So they moved it all into the garage, and she told them what she needed up in the room. She just had boxes and boxes and boxes of odds and end items, you know, almost like if you were to see like someone having a garage sale. As annoyed as Anya was that Jamie showed up with way more stuff than expected, ultimately Anya felt sorry for Jamie because Jamie was a widow. She had told me that her husband had also recently passed away. So, you know, I was feeling bad about it for her. And then I thought, well, then there was probably some meaning behind a lot of the stuff that you're keeping here. What Anya didn't know was that this was a small sign of what was to come. Things would not get better, but they would get weirder. The next morning, she came downstairs and, you know, we were out on the screen porch right off the kitchen. And, you know, I had made coffee and everything. And I was like, oh, so, you know, how are you doing upstairs? Are you getting all organized? And she snapped and said, I just moved in. Like... Why are you asking me that question? And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, why are you speaking to me like that? And then she had a water bottle and she puts it in the refrigerator. Now, she said her name was Jamie Price. Well, on top of the bottle, there was an M. And I I go, oh, your, your water bottle has an M on it, not a J. And she looked at me and... I'm like, I'm just, that's just kind of odd that you don't have a J on it. And she goes, it's a M for mine. Anya was taken aback. Had she made a mistake renting out a room in her home to the stranger? Weeks went by and Jamie mostly stayed in her room. She also put her own lock on the door. So she had her own key, you know, her own lock on the door. Anya felt more and more uneasy with Jamie living in her house. When Jamie was in the common area, she often seemed annoyed and would make snarky comments to Anya. And then there was the refrigerator. Jamie would fill it up with food from the local food pantry, and then she would just let it sit there, untouched for weeks on end. It would rot and smell. She had chicken in the refrigerator that she didn't cook. And she just sat, it just sat there. So it was raw chicken. And it sat there and sat there and sat there. Well, you could not even walk in my house without smelling this awful chicken. And she made it clear that I was not allowed to touch it. Anya felt like she was trapped in her own home with someone who was making her life miserable. Then, when rent was due the following month, Jamie never paid. Everything was sort of like, well, first of all, all the stuff in the house, all the stuff in the garage. Well, when are you going to get rid of it? You know, when are you going to move it? So this was a constant kind of thing, you know. 
And then she wasn't paying the rent. So she gave you money for the first month and then she stopped in the second or how did that go? Yeah, first month just to move in. And then there was no money after that. And that's when things became a problem. When Jamie stopped paying rent, this nagging feeling in the pit of Anya's stomach turned into full-blown suspicion. Just who was Jamie Price? Who was Anya really dealing with here? Unsure what to do, she confided in her friends, and they started to dig. And they discovered that Jamie Price was not her real name. Jamie Price was actually Marion Burntson. Marion with an M. They Googled her real name, and they came up with her name that there was a warrant for her arrest. And that's when I freaked out. It turns out Marion Burntson had a troubled past, and Anya was just scratching the surface. Once Anya Hertel found out that Jamie was really Marion, she also found Marion's outstanding arrest warrants, and she could see that Marion had been tied up in lawsuits with previous landlords. This was ominous, to say the least. I saw that other people had gone to court with her, and that's when I was like, court? Oh my gosh. Because, you know, she wasn't going to go. She wasn't going to leave. I could tell she was going to stay and just take advantage for as long as she could. Anya decided to do some investigating. So she called the chief of police of the town in which Marion had an outstanding arrest warrant. And he says, I'm really sorry that you're dealing with this woman. We dealt with her for over 10 years. Um, There was a warrant out for her arrest because she used to be in real estate. And she had, you know, dealings that she was wanted for. Marion Burnson had three arrest warrants, but they were all for local ordinances in Wisconsin. So the police in Illinois didn't have the authority to transport her back. Moving across state lines proved to be an effective way for her to avoid arrest. And Marion used different names to cover her tracks. Over a year before meeting Anya, in March of 2012, Marion moved into a spare room in John's house. She used the last name Bernstein instead of Burntson. John lived in Spring Grove, Illinois, another town outside of Chicago. And Marion paid the first month's rent right away. $400. She's like, oh, here you go. Here's your first check. Here's your $400 check. $400 was not a lot for the room. It was spacious. And John's house was unique, a converted barn. But it wasn't just about the money for John, who was recently divorced and had a kid who lived with him part-time. John liked the idea of having roommates, a little bit of community in his home. I didn't charge a whole lot. I'm just simply trying to cover a couple bills, you know, looking for maybe some company because you're going through a hard time. You know, you just you just want to open your home up a little bit. You're going to help somebody out. John liked that Marion was in her 70s. He felt like she would be good company while not being too rowdy or loud. So she moved in and they settled into their new living arrangement. At first, it was easy. Marion spent most of her time in her room, but she would occasionally join the others when they watched TV She was quiet but polite, the picture of this nice lady. But when rent was due the following month, suddenly Marion stayed locked away in her room. The first of the month turned into the second, then the third. I let it go to about like four days. 
And, uh, and finally I knocked in her door and, uh, I said, I said, Marion, you know, uh, your, your rent's due and I just haven't seen you. And after she said, she just screamed out, I'm not paying. John was confused. What was happening? He noticed that Marion had put a lock on her door that he didn't have a key to. But just as he was trying to wrap his head around the situation, Marion threatened him. Your question immediately is, why? And she's like, I'm just not paying you. Get away from my door. And if you come into the, my, my, I'm, I'm going to call the police. And when I knocked on the door, sure enough, within 15 minutes, police are knocking on my door in the front door. This was the first of many times in which Marion called the cops on John while she wasn't paying rent and she was locked away in her room. So now you've got, now you've got this situation where she's already created this, uh, they started stacking the cards to her advantage where she's saying you know, she's not paying, she refuses to pay, she calls the police saying you're threatening her and you're just like dumbfounded. Things quickly went from bad to worse. A few days after Marion refused to pay John rent, he got a notice in the mail. Marion was suing him for $50,000. I received a, a legal documentation on being sued for, for, for not fulfilling my side of the contract for some reason. And uh, it isn't like she just, it's a one page or a two page legal document. This is well written, well thought out, maybe a seven or eight page document that has several different counts to it to where you're being sued for several different things. The core of Marion's argument was that John had misrepresented his home in some kind of way, and therefore she refused to pay rent. But John actually hadn't even had Marion sign a lease, so there was no contract for him to violate. No, I didn't have her sign a lease. I, I, I'm just not that kind of a guy. You know, they're living down the hall. And so you have an understanding and you assume that because you're not renting a house that's out down the street or whatever, and they're right there, you assume that it's a verbal contract and you just assume that they're going to honor that, that you can't imagine that someone's going to simply say, well, you know, I'm not going to pay you. And, and I'm the kind of guy that says, look, if, if there's a disagreement of something, I'll work it out. So within your first day, you're already hit with the legal documents. you got police at the front door. you got the order of protection so that you can't do anything. You can't touch her. You can't get into her room. And so she's, she's got, she's all set. And so you all, all of a sudden you have a tidal wave of anguish that has hit you within a 24 hour period. So she's all ready to go. She's got everything set up. She's got you set up and you're going to feel the pain. It was a very similar trajectory for Anya Hertel. Once Marion refused to pay rent, Marion became more aggressive. Anya told me Marion called the police on her multiple times. Once, when Anya threw out Marion's rotting food that was stinking up the whole house, Marion called the cops and claimed that Anya was stealing food from her. Anya was lucky in this situation in that she personally knew many of the local police. And so while they arrived at her door and took reports every time Marion called them, it was more of a hassle to Anya than a threat to her safety. Little did Anya know that calling the cops on her was all part of a calculated plan. Both John and Anya would be shocked to learn that the woman living in their homes was actually part of a domestic terrorist group. 
Anya first heard the term when she called that chief of police in Wisconsin and asked him about Marion. And he said, I want you to write down the word sovereign citizen. And he said, that's what she is. And I go, well, that almost sounds like a good thing. He goes, no, it's a really bad thing. And he said, I would do a little investigating and I like wish you the best of trying to get rid of her. If you have a moment, please follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference, so thank you. FBI.gov defines sovereign citizens as, quote, anti-government extremists who believe that even though they physically reside in this country, they are separate or sovereign from the United States. When I first heard that term, it, it, it sort of gives you this impression that a sovereign citizen is somebody that's going to uh, take a position against, say, oppression from the government or oppression from corporations or oppression from from some other uh, entity. But what I what I have learned are people that take advantage of the court system to be abusive to just average people. John described the whiplash he felt when he learned what Marion was doing. As it turned out, during Marion's first month in his home, while she was smiling and pleasant and sometimes joining him in the living room to watch TV, she was simultaneously plotting her case against him. You're trying to, you know, you know, pay your bill. You, you're going to work. You're doing, you're doing what you need to get done to get through life or whatever. You're, you're interacting socially or whatever. And meanwhile, she's spending hours upon hours, night, every night, up late night, working on this on this legal document against you and your family. Marion didn't stop at John. She went after his whole family. She sued my ex-wife, my, my, you know, at the time when I was going through a divorce. My wife at the time had nothing to do with the situation. She sued her as well. My two oldest sons that weren't even in the house were being sued as well, just because they were, they, they, she got hold of their names. And so they became part of this situation. John's other roommate and friend was also sued by Marion. Everyone's being sued. You know, she corporately goes after everybody and, and, and creates just this tremendous, horrible situation for everybody. And so it isn't just me saying, it isn't just me struggling with this. It's people coming to me and say, I got this in the mail. What is going on? Marion had never even met John's ex-wife, and she'd hardly ever interacted with his adult sons. But she was suing all of them. It was so ridiculous that John wondered if any of it could be legitimate. So he found a lawyer who had actually dealt with Marion in the past. And John learned that getting her out of his house would not be a quick, easy, or cheap endeavor. And he told me that he charged his customer $26,000 in order to get her out of his home. Now, he told me that he actually was lenient because of the amount of paperwork, because of the the running around the courtroom. Uh, He felt he was very uh, generous with his client in only charging them around $25,000, $26,000. But he gave me some advice. He said, look, he said, John, you sometimes you just simply have to go through the motions, trust the system, and just continue to pursue getting her out of your home. The lawsuits that Marion filed against John and his family were all fraudulent, 
filled with fabricated claims, but the court didn't know they were fraudulent yet. And John realized that fighting Marion was going to take a lot of time and money. You know, a a sovereign citizen would not be able to take on maybe a corporation, but a corporation who has infinite amount of money or an infinite amount of legal team would just go ahead and just say, fine, let's do it. But an individual that doesn't have unlimited resources is going to feel the, the anguish of what they're trying to do. John had never heard of the sovereign citizen movement before he met Marion. Neither had Anya. In fact, a lot of people haven't. And that could be because it's a movement with no central leadership. It's made up of a vast and diverse group of people. But the unifying idea is that sovereign citizens reject the U.S. government and its institutions. They believe that they just have to declare themselves sovereign, and then the laws don't apply to them. So they don't recognize law enforcement, courts, or taxation. Basically, they just don't follow any laws that they don't want to. But it's also wrapped up in a conspiracy theory. I spoke with Rachel Goldwasser, a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. She has been monitoring the sovereign citizen movement for the past eight years. Many of them believe that when the U.S. um, sort of went away from the gold standard, which was in 1933, the government became a corporation. That's the conspiracy theory. And since then, we've sort of been defrauded to believe we're citizens when we're actually sort of slaves of this corporation is how they interpret it. Many people have gotten into the movement as a crossover from QAnon, the conspiracy that there's just a huge cabal out there essentially that are either uh, child traffickers or in some way a deep state, you know, that's working against the government. Many sovereign citizens use the court system to assert their beliefs, filing massive amounts of lawsuits in order to tie up legal proceedings, confuse courts, or attack judges. There are many instances in which sovereign citizens will file restraining orders against judges just to delay legal proceedings. There are sovereign citizen YouTubers who explain how to use the court system as a kind of weapon, how to file lawsuits, and what language to use. But the problem is the language doesn't actually make any sense. It's not like sovereign citizens are getting law degrees. They're often just interpreting the laws however they want. Rachel Goldwasser told me that she sees this all the time, and she calls it pseudo-law. There's a lot of language. I internally call it like argle-bargle, language that nobody else is really going to understand. Even the sovereigns who are uh, utilizing that language don't always really understand it. But... They will use it in a way where the court system is really tripped up. And that's really specific and intentional. And that is the goal in many cases. The thing is, even if someone files a lawsuit that is full of argle-bargle, as Rachel calls it, the court system can't just throw that out. It still has to be processed and addressed. There still have to be hearings and proper procedure. All of this takes time and resources. This is from the Southern Poverty Law Center website. Quote, the weapon of choice for sovereign citizens is paper. A simple traffic violation or pet licensing case can end up provoking dozens of court filings containing hundreds of pages of pseudo-legal nonsense. Anya Hertel used a different phrase for it. Paper terrorism. They're, They're paper terrorists is what they are. If you're a paper terrorist... Guess what you're doing all day? You're typing up documents all day long. That's what she was doing. Rachel Goldwasser told me that in the 1980s and 90s, the sovereign citizen movement became popular mainly for economic reasons. 
the main attraction was that there were people that were just desperate. Oftentimes they were being evicted from their homes or their homes were being foreclosed on or they were in some other kind of financial trouble. Marianne was a real estate agent in Wisconsin starting in 1974. She was even the president of the Women's Council of Realtors for her local board. But by the 1990s, something had shifted. Marianne and her husband started running scams. In one instance, she pretended to work for a loan company and gave a potential home buyer the runaround, racking up $8,000 in fees. She eventually lost her real estate license in 1994. Marianne and her husband owned four properties that were foreclosed on in the 90s. It's unclear exactly how Marianne discovered the sovereign citizen movement. But Rachel told me that there were a lot of sovereign citizen evangelists roaming the country during this time. There were what are called sovereign citizen gurus, people that often will go around the country sort of preaching this idea of sovereign citizenship. And as part of that would say, well, you don't need to pay your taxes. You know, you can fight this eviction. You're going to keep your house. You can fight that foreclosure. You're going to keep your house. And there's something, you know, probably very attractive about the idea that this trouble and the stress that you're in can be alleviated. In 2006, Marianne and her husband tried to fraudulently declare bankruptcy multiple times in order to disrupt the final sale of a property they once owned, hoping to tie it up in litigation. They ended up leaving Wisconsin and moving to Illinois. Then, in 2009, Marianne's husband died. And this seems to be when she started targeting homeowners. Shortly after her husband's death, she moved into a condo in Mount Prospect, Illinois, The owner of that condo would be her first victim. She likely needed a place to live, and perhaps the idea that she could avoid paying rent was the initial impetus for the scam. Marion never targeted big companies that would have the resources to fight her. Instead, she found individual people renting rooms out in their homes, people who didn't have the capital to fight her in court. And then she would employ the same tactics that she would go on to use for years after. Calling the police, refusing to pay rent, filing lawsuits. Marion then worked her way through the Chicago suburbs. By 2012, John was her newest victim. John didn't end up hiring a lawyer to fight Marion. He couldn't afford it. He decided to represent himself. This meant hours of research, court dates, time away from his kids. I decided not to spend that kind of money. I couldn't, I couldn't really afford that kind of money at the time. And so what I did is continue to go to court, fight this as best I could, look up different responses, legal responses online, and did this on my own. After doing some initial research, John decided that if Marion was going to sue him, he would just sue her back. I countersued her so that she had some blood in the game as well. So she had to respond into where I said, look, she has not paid. She defrauded me of my of, of money and, and the contract. She came in and manipulated the situation. I simply said to the court as well, so she owes me this money, even though she put a $50,000 uh, know, claim against me, I did the same towards her. So this sort of, I sort of took the offense against her. But it would be a long fight against Marion Bernson, one that included many court appearances and even more visits from the police. And from the outside, it looked bad for John. 
He was a healthy, strong, tall man in his 40s. By contrast, Marion was in her 70s. The optics were not good. Even though John knew Marion made up all of the allegations against him, when they stepped into a courtroom, the judge didn't know that. So here you got a guy at the time, you know, a guy, I'm about six foot. Uh, I, I work out, exercise, so I'm a big guy. And so now you got this little old lady. So how, and, and it, it, that's basically accusing me of all kinds of things. How do you think a judge is going to look at that? You have a lady that doesn't seem to have, she doesn't have any money. She can't pay her rent for whatever reason. Doesn't always shake clean. You know, you, you sit back and you go, you know what, he sizes things up. I got a little old lady here. What could she possibly do wrong? Months went by, and John felt like he was making very little progress getting Marion out of his house. He hoped that eventually the justice system would work for him, but he didn't know how long that might take. And when I spoke with John, I have to say he was agitated remembering this time, maybe even scared. He said it was an incredibly stressful and taxing time in his life. You're just ragged. You had six months of complete torment where you got this individual that you just don't have, you have no idea what you're capable of. So now you're sleeping behind a closed door. You have no idea, you know, you're making sure that you're, you're circling the wagon train and making sure that the enemy's out and you're, you're just trying to get through, um, you know, through safely through this thing. John's anxiety was mounting. He thought, what if she wins? What if I can't get rid of her? It might seem ridiculous, this strong, six-foot-tall man being so shaken by the presence of an old lady. But he was. He said he felt like a prisoner in his own home. In his darkest moments, he said he was scared for his safety and the safety of his daughter. He worried that Marion might try to poison them. He wasn't really sure what Marion was capable of. It's something that you just are always looking over your shoulder all the time, 24 hours a day. And so this is what you live with, this sort of hell, if you will. John was uncomfortable. His roommate was uncomfortable. His daughter was uncomfortable. But he said, as far as he could tell, Marion was not uncomfortable. In fact, he told me he kind of thought Marion was enjoying how much control she had over him. Her goal is to, is to have control is to manipulate you, to torment you, to frustrate you, to make your life miserable for some reason. John said it felt to him like Marion's goal the entire time from the moment she moved in was to terrorize him, to exhaust his resources and break down his mental stability. It's really difficult to understand the motive of someone like that. You know, it's sort of trying to find a motive of somebody that wants to do harm to another person. Why would you want to just randomly hurt another individual or intentionally, you know, harm somebody. And this is sort of what she, her game is, is I think she very much enjoys being in a control mode and trying to manipulate your life and manipulate your your emotions and or uh, your situation. Admittedly, it's hard enough to wrap my head around the idea of this lady, a widow in her 70s, 
terrorizing John and Anya. It's even harder to understand John's theory that this wasn't about money for Marion, that this was about power and control. He believed that Marion got some kind of satisfaction out of making him uncomfortable in his own home. But Anya said a similar thing to me. Both John and Anya spoke about Marion with this mix of horror, regret, and fear. Anya went even further than John, calling Marion evil. Just didn't really know how much evil I was dealing with, and I was dealing with evil. I mean, who would want a lifestyle like that? Would you really want to be living in someone's house and the whole time knowing that you're there to just basically destroy their life? Finally, one day, John decided he would do whatever he could to take back some control in his own home. If Marion wasn't going to leave his house peacefully, he would make sure that his home was as inhospitable as possible. John figured two can play this game. So he did some digging into her past. She was arrested um, some years back for some sort of a weird uh, traffic violation because she was being resistant towards the police on being pulled over, and so she had a mugshot. John printed out copies upon copies of Marion's mugshot. I wanted to make things as uncomfortable as possible for her. So what I did is on the doorway when she's walking in, on the stairway, walking up the stairs. That's when I started putting her mugshot. <laughs> when she was arrested earlier, uh, I, I made a few copies of that and put that on there. Did she react at all? She, yeah, she, she started, you could see that she, she was definitely agitated. And I would make comments as she walked to her room. I'd say, what kind of a person are you that would do this to, to innocent people? You know, I'd make little comments like that to make her... To, to hopefully to shame her in, into what, you know, that, uh, in what she was doing to, to innocent people. Around five months into his court battle, John got a glimmer of hope. The countersuit that he'd filed against Marion was working. After about five months of responding, going to court, the judge <clears throat> sat us down in the courtroom, at the, at the back of the courtroom, and he, and he looked at her and said, look, he has a countersuit against you, and, I, and I'm listening to what he has to say. And uh, he says, I'm suggesting that you make an agreement right now to work it out, leave in peace. And uh, and so he was very, very good at negotiating with her as well, saying, look, you have skin in the game here. You are you are a subject to possibly being owing him money, not the other way around. As it turned out, the judge was able to see through Marion's scheme. Perhaps Marion realized that the jig was up. Because during their conversation, she agreed to move out of John's house. John didn't quite believe it at first. He had been so affected by the whole affair that he didn't think it could actually be over. She agrees to move out with the judge. And so you are right away only hoping that that is an employee of some sort. But that someone comes up and helps her move out is like a day of liberation. You know, it is a jubilee sort of time. You're like, you realize that nightmare is over and she's moving out. And then you wonder about this individual that's helping her move out. And I'm thinking, why? Well, I wonder if he's moving, helping her move into his home. Marion moved out of John's house in September of 2012. Six months of chaos had finally come to an end. 
But John and Marion's civil case continued through the court system until March of 2013, when Marion didn't show up for a court date. And because of her absence, the judge dismissed the case. Although this happened over 10 years ago, John still remembers the relief that he felt knowing that he would never have to deal with Marion again. Finally, when that door closes, it's just, you just feel the peace coming back into your house. It's, it's undescribable. Uh, it's what you go through for, for six months, and it, it, it's, it's very much tests the, the, the strongest individual in the world. It's going to put you, something like that will put you through a test to see what your character is made out of. But Marion did not stop at John. She would go on to terrorize at least two more homeowners, including Anya Hertel. Marion moved into Anya's house just six months after John's civil case ended. In 2013, Anya was in the weeds, trying to figure out how to get Marion out of her house. Marion still had mountains of furniture stored in Anya's garage, and she was stuffing every spare inch of the refrigerator with food and then letting it rot. And it seemed like any time Anya confronted Marion about it, Marion called the police. Anya could not afford to hire an attorney. She had contacted nonprofits that offer legal counsel, but to no avail. She felt totally stuck. I even worked at the city of McHenry and talked to the chief of police. You know, they're, they're right there in my office there, right across the hall. And they said there's nothing they can do legally. Anya kept showing up to court dates regardless, pleading her case with judges. And finally, a judge that she spoke with actually ended up referring her to a service that provided her pro bono representation. But the whole thing still took months. Anya said she went to court 20 times battling Marion. It felt like it would never end. And just as Marion had with John, Marion still lived in Anya's house, and she was making Anya's life miserable. It does change you a little bit. It really does. When someone tries that hard to bring you down, it really affects you and it affects your family. You know, it affects lots of things. It affects your job. Luckily for Anya, the judge in her case eventually caught on to Marion's scam. He found a technical mistake in Marion's paperwork and dismissed the lawsuit. Marion was ordered to move out of Anya's house. For a time, Anya Hertel kept track of Marion, where she had been and where she was going. She spoke with people that Marion lived with before her. The woman before that, I found out, spent $24,000 in court fees. She started out with her as a babysitter first and then, like, lived with them. And then she did the food thing and all that you know, with the refrigerator and all, all that stuff. She did all of it. It's like the same tactics. Anya also spoke with people that Marion lived with after her. Actually, I was in touch with someone she moved in with right after me. Two people. I mean, she just keeps doing the same thing. And these are all very nice people, you know? I mean, she just moves from one to the next to the next. Where she went after the second person, I don't know. I really don't know. Marion Bernson owes over $26,000 in unpaid taxes, and there are still five municipal warrants out for her arrest. 
Since 2014, there has been no trace of her in Illinois or Wisconsin. If she is still alive, she'll be 87 this year. Her whereabouts remain unknown. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with Natalie Gregory and Sarah Dalgleish. Colin Thompson is our executive producer. Anton Doty is our editor and music editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. The Opportunist show cover art is by Joel Hassemeyer. Our theme song is Waltz for Zechariah from the album Cholate. Do you have a suggestion for the show and opportunist that you want to hear us cover? You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music.